This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3182 for Tuesday, the 13th of October 2020. Today's show is entitled Yo Ho Ho and a bottle of Cholly Calciferol. It is hosted by Dave Morris and is about 79 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is from Scotland to HPR host Shoe the Fat. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello everybody, welcome to Hacker Public Radio. This is Dave Morris and with me today is Andrew Conway over in far, far away Glasgow. I'm in nearby Edinburgh, of course. Yes, yes, yes. So it's, it's good to talk to you, Dave. And uh, yeah, so we're quite, we're quite fairly close together. Um, but uh, but you have, there's one major difference between us at the moment in that I am not allowed to go and visit anyone else in their house in the area, like about, I think it's over a million people around me are all in the same boat. But over in the east of Scotland, only 40 miles to the east, you can still uh, go around to other people's houses, I believe. Is that, is that the well, case? I think that's true, actually. Yeah, we, we seem to have got away with things fairly lightly here for some reason, though how long that will remain the case, I don't know. But uh, no, we, we seem to have eased things off in fact, I've been um, being the age I am, and with the with the various problems, medical problems I have, I've been keeping um, whatever they call it, shielding or sheltering or hiding or whatever. Uh, <laughs> although it's not official, apparently there's an official thing. You get a letter from the NHS saying you should go and you know hide in a cupboard for the next month, but. Um, but well, yeah, I hope they don't do that. <laughs> that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. But um, yeah, I've not had one of those, which is which is a bit puzzling. But anyway, I'm not complaining. Um, so my house, we before the coronavirus thing, my kids would come over for dinner twice a week, um, and uh, with 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 friends and partners sometimes as well. Um, and we stopped that, but now we've we've resumed because, well, I think we reckon that, that the sort of bubble, as it were, that we we were operating in is probably safe enough. So, uh, and I um, I don't know how whether you've managed to to do this, but I I actually went to visit somebody yesterday, a friend in town. It was in Princess Street Garden, so it was out in the open and everything. But I caught the bus into town, and uh, and back again, and. Didn't it, it? It went pretty well, actually. The bus behaviour was good. Everybody wore a mask. People kept well away from everybody else as much as you can in a bus, you know. So, so uh, yeah. So, but it's it's a lot more locked down where you are. Yes, and um, well, no, yes and no. 
yes, we're, we, the, the rules are more stringent. I would say, amongst people I know, I can hardly think of a person that's really taking them seriously. Um, in fact, it's hard to follow them because on a daily basis, people will, will say, I'll just pop around or how about your kid comes over for a play date with our kid or the birthday party. And, you know, uh, and actually what's happened uh, is that most people have just carried on as normal. Now, these are people with children. And, and I feel this too, to be honest, is I'm thinking, well, as soon as my children went back to school, things changed because suddenly I went from being connected to one other household pretty much to being really in quite close contact with my children, especially my daughters at primary school, with hundreds of other mm -hmm. households. And mm -hmm. we, we stop and think about it, how many households you know people come into contact with. Um, through, if you've got two children that I have, then suddenly, you know, and there's really, there's really no social distancing, certainly none at all in the primary school and virtually none in secondary school. I mean, the, the government says there is... Uh, but you talk to any teacher or any child that's at school, and you'll find that no, the, that uh, the, the, the social distancing is impossible, uh, mm. really. Mm. In those absolutely, uh, yeah. And I, I'm fine with that because my children's education is very important, and thankfully, this disease does not hit children as hard as it hits older people. So it shouldn't really come as a surprise to me when I look. Uh, there's a I don't know if you've you, you've seen this app, but it's from um, King's College London. The, the coronavirus app that they've come up with where you report every day whether you're feeling well or whether you've had a test. Very mm -hmm. simple questions, mm -hmm. actually. Yep. Have, you, have you come across that app? I've not actually seen it in the, in the place, but I've heard people talking about it. Yeah, well, I, it's quite nicely put together, because it is very lightweight, very simple. Um, and you, so you enter your details. And once you've entered your details, it then says, like, here's some data from we've collated from millions of users across the, the UK. And today I was looking at the data and the region of the UK that has the highest number of cases per million people, as far as I can tell, um, I've been clicking around trying to check this, but it, it looks very much to me like it's the city of Glasgow. You know? Wow. So yeah. Well, I didn't realize so, that. Okay. No, I didn't realize that. I was looking around the north of England and for some weeks now, I've known that Scotland has been hit harder than any other part of the UK. Uh, although, if you read the press, you, you might get the opposite impression. But it, it's been obvious now to me from this and other sources. Um, but I can't find another area of the, the UK, not in the northwest of England, which is also having a bad time with it just now. In fact, when you look at the map, the whole map of the UK has gone red, except for the south of England. South of England. Uh, including London, is sort of a pink colour, and the rest of the country's gone red, which means mm -hmm. over a thousand cases per million people. So, no, it does, I mean, as far as I can tell, it does look like Glasgow is the highest, if not, it will be in the, amongst the highest in terms of cases, active yeah. cases of COVID I just now. So. Yeah, I've, I must admit, I've stopped tracking things quite as closely as I was maybe a month or so ago. So I hadn't, I hadn't actually spotted that. Um, yeah, it's very, very strange. The, the sort of things that I've been hearing about, I listened to a podcast called This Week in Virology, which I've mentioned before in various contexts, but uh, they, they're looking at it from the, the point of view of virology, epidemiology, and immunology. 
Um, so uh, one of the, the things that they have been saying is that, um, well, first of all, the removal of the, the lockdown is just going to mix the virus up again and more people are going to get it. And secondly, with children going back to school, yes, they don't catch it, but they, uh, well, no, that's not true. They don't, they're not affected by it, but they do catch it. Um, I think some of the analyses of antibodies in children have shown that most of them have seen the disease and generated immunity to it. But the problem is that while they are building that immunity, they might just feel a little bit off, but they might not feel anything at all. Um, they're actually shedding virus. So if they go to school and then contact somebody who's got the virus and then come home with it, there's a chance that they would pass it on to the parents who, uh, or grandparents who are more likely to uh, to be affected by it, was, was the, the argument I'd heard. But, yes, but I, I, think, I think that's, I mean, that's the obvious explanation that why Scotland has, has gone from being, um, in terms of number of cases, not as bad as some parts of England. Um, in terms of death, sadly, Scotland is just as bad as, as, as the rest of the UK. Um, the way that deaths were reported in Scotland, I think, gave a misleading impression on that. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. Um, but the, the obvious explanation to the current situation is English, Scottish schools go back uh, several weeks before English schools, and that's why Scotland is currently ahead in the COVID cases mm, count. But that. having said that, the, the big but there is that does not explain why the south of England and around London seems to be slightly better off at the moment. There's something else, something else interesting about that, and it may be, it may be, like to the, what, one of the things that you said is that it had greater exposure at the back in March and April. Of course, back then London was the worst hit part of yep. the UK, yep. wasn't it? Yeah. So it well, may be maybe related to that that London is now not suffering quite as much as the rest of the country. Well, I've listened to a lot of discussion about the factors that lead to a very nasty very nasty consequences from the this coronavirus and there obviously age is one well-known factor comorbidities so if you're diabetic you've got heart condition etc then um you 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 stand a better chance of uh, well a worse chance of, of effect of being affected by it but um there is also talk about things like vitamin d there, there was there was a lot of talk about vitamin d being being a factor because as a country we don't do well as far as our vitamin d levels are concerned because we're not out in the sun often mm. enough and we don't always take enough supplements so there's a very strong recommendation that we all should be taking vitamin d supplements um i can't remember something like 25 milligrams i think is sorry micrograms is the recommended amount uh but i've heard of people taking uh, two and four times that amount, but it, it's not a problematic uh, vitamin. So, but the the argument though was that with uh, a low level of vitamin D, your immune system does not function as well. So it's mm. not a magic thing that that kills coronavirus. It's that with you up to the appropriate level of vitamin D, you are more likely to have your immune system zapping it. And um, the other thing that I've been hearing about is that there's quite a number of people of all different ages 
probably more the more healthy people, ones with better immune systems and so forth, who who get it, have no idea that they have it, mm-hmm. and it it passes. You know, they 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 develop immunity to it, and then you know, they, but they are shedding it while while they have it, they're shedding the virus to others. But uh, but along the way, they're they're building immunity and coming out the other side. So I wonder if there's actually a lot more people who've who've managed to get it in a mild form or an an invisible form and uh, and get a build immunity as a consequence. You know? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, that would see the problem I have with when I said earlier that um, London might be getting an easier time of it because it had a harder time of it back in March, April at the beginning. The problem with that is that sort of is saying that, yeah, we didn't get to herd immunity levels. So, assuming we all started, if, if we make the assumption that we all started with no immunity, there is no way that a sufficient number of people got it in London or anywhere else back in March or April. There wasn't enough people that got it to get us anywhere near herd immunity or even to the stage where it would really significantly um, interrupt the transmission of the virus. Because mm-hmm. to get that, you need to, you know, to get herd immunity, you need to be up at 60, 70 percent. That's right. To start yeah. to yeah. slow, uh, to start to see an effect on transmission, you need to be up. Uh, 30, 40, 50% level. But this, if we started at a baseline of zero, no immunity, there was no way we got there. There shouldn't... The effect that I just mentioned, that London is having an easier time with it now because it had a hard time before, that shouldn't happen at this stage because not enough people have had it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the obvious solution to that is that the assumption that we started with 0% immunity was wrong. So then the question is, well, how many people had some form of coronavirus because it has been shown now in a fairly well-known nature paper that it's not antibodies directly or i don't understand that you i'm sure you understand it better than i but it's these things called t-cells yes. that generate yes. the immunity and what the, that nature paper showed that i thought was extremely significant was one t-cell immunity can last for years up to 17 years for sars and mars which were uh, you know, the outbreak was 2003 for, for SARS. So 17 years on, people still have resistance and immunity against that strain of SARS. But the other thing is they found people had immunity to COVID-19, or as they called it, SARS-CoV-2, even though they ne- there was no evidence they'd ever had it. Uh, yeah, but they had yeah. had exposure to some other similar coronavirus. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I was going to mention that. I I heard some discussion about this. They're saying that uh, if you if you have been exposed to certain other illnesses and have sh- have just shrugged them off, then it can lead leave you with an Im- immune system that can cope better with the. Uh, the, the 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 coronavirus that we're currently suffering from, and that and that they, there was some speculation. Well, definitely that you know the common cold stuff. If you'd had that recently before the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 was SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, by the way, and COVID nineteen is the disease, and that is oh. so stupidly. Con- why did they do that? I don't know why they did that, but anyway, that's why. I sat with a difference. I always wondered why, because we have the new sensei coronavirus. And then COVID-19 tends to be the hashtag, and scientific papers tend to talk about SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, that's because that's SARS, why. Okay. SARS-CoV-1 was uh, the the um, 
the original sires that that uh, that was all over Asia, um, as you say, several years ago. But that's my understanding of it anyway. It's just odd. Yeah. This is the World Health Authority um, came uh, or organization came up with this because of there being various political reasons, <laughs> the reasoning behind it or something. So, so just I'm, I'm sure when you say COVID-19 is a disease, that means when you say it's a disease, that is identifying it by a collection of symptoms. Yes, yes. Right. So that's how the virus manifests itself. Yes. Whereas if you actually saw this little thing through a microscope that was the virus, that's SARS-CoV-2 uh, or Cov 2 whatever you... I've heard yes. we're pronounced it's that different ways. Severe <laughs> acute respiratory syndrome is SARS. COV is just a abbreviation for coronavirus. And one was was the one that got called car, SARS. <laughs> I'm getting confused now. And, uh, and, and the two is... Um, the one that produces COVID nineteen. So yeah, uh, okay. yeah. so it's so, a little bit laboured all the nomenclature, but that, that's that, if it helps. That's uh, that's what it is. Uh, no, no, that's that's been yeah, but, that's, that's that's really good to know. Yeah. But um, so, coming back from that digression for a second, um, there was also some debate as to whether um, people who had fairly recently had an anti-TB injection, which is um, called BCG. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I just love I just I, love I, <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that's what it stood that's for. That's what it is, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just me being silly. Um, but uh, that seemed to have done something to their immune system. Obviously, it does something to their immune system, that's the whole point of it. But it, it got it into a state where it could fight off the coronavirus was uh, was was being speculated. I don't know that that has actually been proven, but uh, that was uh, some quite strong speculation a month or so back that I was, I was hearing. Yeah. Well, the... Um the, the the significance of that nature paper, and they mention it, but they're but they're very careful to say our result is based on well, their result is based on sample of thirty six people, and all it shows is that they've found evidence, and uh, they call it n equals thirty six. That's the way they like to present it in the abstract in, in papers. In the, in the abstract, I read the whole paper. Some of it was beyond me, but the statistics was not. Mm-hmm. So it's a small sample, but what they did find is evidence of long lasting immunity. And the fact that some people seem to be immune to SARS-CoV-2, uh, even though they they had there was no evidence that this person had ever had it, so the conclusion yes, was yes. it was likely that they had an, another coronavirus. So, and, and that's that's what the evidence in the paper was. And then they speculate that perhaps uh, that people in the general population have immunity for the same reasons. Now, the extrapolation, some people ran quite you know, <laughs> excitedly away with that result based on a fairly small sample. But it, there, are, there are some, I would say, circumstantial things that would suggest that there's something to this. First of all, is the fact that so many that there's so many asymptomatic cases. I mean, that's a bit weird for, for starters. But what's also interesting, if you look at studies, it's, it's not, it seems to vary from place to place what the asymptomatic rate is. Now, that could be because it's actually quite difficult to know it. But there are a few cases like cruise ships and other circumstances where you can get, a, you know, a lot of testing was done. Um, so you can get some idea. Um, but it does seem that there's a st- st- statistically significant difference 
and the number of the, and the asymptomatic rate, you know, so like say oh, people that get it, fifty percent show no symptoms, or maybe it was thirty mm. uh, percent mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or seventy percent. It seems to vary like that depending on studies. Well, that would suggest this, you know, if if you're asymptomatic because you actually had some uni- immunity to it, like you were describing, then that would explain the high and variable asymptomatic rate. The other thing uh, that was interesting, and this is a bit more speculative, but it would, when you look at some countries, it, it, it's it, you scratch your head and look at the the measures that they took, and uh, and uh, and you think, well, how did the num- why the number of cases take such a different trajectory to the like a similar nearby country or a con- you know country that seems to be not that different? So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and the and the one that of course discussed most is Sweden. So Sweden, oh, yes, yes, Sweden, so Sweden strange, had a, yeah, Sweden had a. I mean, it didn't have no lockdown measures, but no lock, much lighter lockdown, no face masks. You know, I mean, certainly the, the famously the, the country with the least uh, measures implemented in the world, and for a while, because sadly, like in the UK and Scotland, they let the virus get into care homes. They had a horrendous uh, summer of deaths uh, from. The, the COVID nineteen, but recently the number of the number of cases has just dropped, and you can actually looking at any you know here you could say that the drop in cases was coincided with lockdown. The the, the the exponential it looks like an exponential drop in cases at the end of the summer in Sweden during the summer and towards the end of the summer is is not you can't you can't match it to anything that the government has said, do this lockdown more, you know, there's, there's, there's no connection, something else has caused the drop mm-hmm. um, and I yeah. don't know what that is, but Isn't that one, amazing? that's really interesting the, the suggestion that I've heard is because they let it spread enough through their uh, community that they've achieved herd immunity but they've done that not because they got from 0% to 65% whatever you need the speculation, and this is just speculation, that they've gone from thirty or forty or fifty percent up to sixty-five percent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would fit with the numbers. We're zero percent up there. So, actually, what happens next in Sweden is probably very interesting. You know, um, I'm not I'm not some mad libertarian that wants to. You know, I don't mind personally the restrictions if they're for good reason. I'll I'll go along with them. Sure, I'd be happy sure. with them. Uh-huh. And I certainly was back in March, um, but then. Uh, I look at Sweden and I think that is a bit of an interesting case, you know. And I, 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 you know, I'd like to see what happens there. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear more about it. I, I haven't really followed up the the Sweden information. I have to admit, but um, but yes, I've heard people saying this is a bit puzzling. We're not quite sure we understand this. In the in the case of um, Asia, where it's been quite well controlled, I think. Um, Vietnam has been particularly good. Korea's done a very good job. Um, Singapore's not been bad, etc. Um, in many cases, uh, it's been put down possibly to the fact that vitamin D levels in those countries may well be a lot higher, you know, by default, because there's plenty of sun and uh, people don't avoid it. Um, as they do in some countries. Apparently, Italy is uh, uh, in Italy. People don't like getting out in the sun very much, so 
which is news to me. I don't know Italy that well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they news don't. to me too. <laughs> so that was the speculation with, with Italy and why Italy had such a, a rough time of it in the early stages. And the other factor was that um, a lot of the Asian countries had had, had the, the SARS virus originally and had and they tended a lot of them have tended to go for mask wearing in gen general you know if you go to japan or if you went to japan before the coronavirus everybody tended to wear a mask not everybody but a high proportion of people would be wearing masks particularly if they had illnesses or whatever or they were keep trying to avoid pollution and that type of thing in tokyo Etc. So it's it's relatively common to for people to wear masks in those countries apparently. So the effect of mask wearing has come to be seen as a significant factor in um, avoiding the the virus because yeah. the the outgoing virus and the person who's got it maybe asymptomatic uh, is reduced by some considerable amount. I don't know what the numbers are, but. I, I heard somebody doing a sort of demonstration of how it would work if it was 50% stoppage. Um, it may be more than that. I don't know. But, um, <clears throat> and then the person at the other end who hasn't got it but is receiving the virus, the virus is being sent to them by the person who has it, then also gets a reduction in the amount of virus that gets into their, their uh, lungs uh, by 50%. So the overall reduction, if there's a a virus-laden person and a non-virus-laden person is 75%. And um, that fits with some of the discussions about how coronavirus um, affects people, which seems to depend on the, the so-called viral load, the number of viruses you actually get uh, mm -hmm. to start the whole thing off, and and also where they where they get to. If they get... I think, I think it infects your mucous membrane of your nose and throat stuff in the first instance and then drops down into your, your lungs where where the majority of damage is, is caused if it's not stopped by your immune system. But um, so I think that the the reduced virus, you won't avoid the virus because these masks are not 100% unless you're wearing you know, an N100 mask, which you wouldn't. Then, you know, you, you, you put the amount of it that you're receiving may well be enough for your immune system to to deal with it um yeah so. yeah no that's that's quite that's quite interesting i think that the thing that i mean I, i've been i've been wearing uh, masks when i've you know been like shopping and uh mm -hmm. if that's really the only time i have to wear it is you know i i generally if if i have to wear a mask to do something i really stop and think twice whether whether i'm going to do it in the first place that's that's my attitude so shopping i have to do because <laughs> got to eat um, and i don't want to Doing home deliveries, I'd rather leave home deliveries for people who want to avoid going to the shops completely. You know, whereas I feel, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not that vulnerable, uh, and um, I'd rather just you know go to the shops myself. So I wear a mask for that. But when I look, and what you just described makes sense. All that makes sense to me. Um, but what I was somewhat surprised to learn about, especially when I've heard certain people, uh, usually in social media evangelizing about how brilliant masks are, how effective they are, is that actually have never been any control trials on the question of whether how much a face mask will reduce uh, the viral load 
that you receive and your chances of infection, those kind of questions. There's never been a control trial. Not one, I don't think. No, uh, no. If, if, uh, please, if uh, anyone listened knows better than that and knows of a control trial, <laughs> I'd, like, I'd love to be wrong. But it just surprises me that, you know, as you say, mask wearing has been a, is a cultural norm uh, in the Far East. Uh, has been for some time now. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet nobody has nobody has actually done a control trial on it. Uh, is, it that, is it that it's actually quite hard to do because you actually need to be, I mean, would, would you use a non-viral substance that, and then how would you detect whether whether the person had, had how much they picked up and so on? I, I don't know. Would you just do it in a, in a um, you know, on a dummy or something like that to see how in a chamber of some particles or other, how many got through to the to the, the mouth and nose area or something? I, I don't know quite how you would run such an experiment. I don't, um, I, don't, I, I don't know either. I assumed that we do control trials in the same way we do, in the same sense, we do control trials of a vaccine uh, uh-huh, in that you uh-huh. give face masks to people but not tell them anything about the quality of the face mask. It's a bit difficult because with a vaccine, you can't see it. <laughs> with a face mask, somebody gives you a flimsy piece of gauze and say, here's your face mask. You can- <laughs> you could be pretty sure that you you're the you're the yes, placebo guy. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm the saline uh, solution. Yes. <laughs> you know, and the person that's got oxygen tanks to wear in their back. The like, oh, kit, yeah. <laughs> maybe I've got the N100 mask. You know? <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's difficult, but it surprises me. No, well, no, I say that because uh, the the model. Uh, what I've come to think really. As somebody who's done a lot of scientific modelling, not in viruses, admittedly, but I think you have to be really careful with modelling because your model results are only as good as the assumptions you put in. And there are many assumptions in a model that you might you you might have done tacitly or implicitly. You know, you might not have deliberately made them, but they're there. And a lot of models fail, I think, because of bad assumptions or assumptions that you just couldn't. You know, you had to assume something because you didn't know better at the time you did them. So. If all the evidence for face masks is based on modelling, then I'm less confident as to their efficacy. You know, and I'm not saying I'm not arguing against face masks. That's not what I'm saying. But what I would really hate is for people to wear face masks and get a false sense of protection from them. Yes, uh, and yes. then stop doing other things because that is actually the advice in Sweden. The was it Tegnell is the, the somewhat controversial um, head of their health organization and he's basically said look i don't advise using a, uh, a face mask best just not to do the things that would make you want to wear a face mask as much as possible he says that is a better strategy now i'm not seeing whether that's right or wrong um but that is the strategy that they he's encouraged that's, in sweden with that's quite interesting that's quite interesting actually because that's more or less what I've been doing for the past <laughs> n months, because <laughs> because I've not until you know the past the past month I've not actually gone out anywhere that that, that needed a that needed a mask or mandated a mask, and I've just sort of kept kept and w- walked around a little bit and kept very very distant from people that are out on the street and that sort of thing. So that, that does make a, a degree of sense, you know. That is the way that. Uh, a lot of people are are avoiding things in this country as well. So yeah, mm. yeah. Actually, I mean, it's funny you say that because other than the supermarket where I wear the mask, I take much the same attitude. And even in the supermarket, I, I do try. If I see an aisle that's absolutely rammed with people, because that occasionally happens. There's a bit of a, a group that comes in the door at the same time, and they kind of move in a similar path. 
So you end up with, you know, a sort of congested aisle of the supermarket uh, for one reason or another. Um, I think, well, I won't go down the aisle, I'll go down the next aisle, which is free at the moment, you know. So I, I, th- I think there's, people don't talk so much about the strategy that you just mentioned and, you know, going down the quieter aisle. But actually, I think that a bit of that is actually quite effective, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, makes sense, you know, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, we, we seem to have dived into quite an interesting discussion about uh, <laughs> the virus, which wasn't, yeah, I wasn't yeah. expecting. But what have you What have you been doing to distract yourself from the, or have you managed to avail yourself of any of the newfound freedoms that you have since the lockdown <laughs> ended in Scotland? Well, I, uh, like I said, the, the family come to eat with me, so I do. I'm doing a lot more cooking because there's 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 um, we have a we have a four people around the table and three of them are extraordinarily hungry so uh, so so there's a fair <laughs> amount of cooking and in bulk that needs to be done <laughs> so I, I, I make large quantities well you know i do because i sent you a recipe and without without telling you oh this will feed eight or something and you <laughs> i sent you yes. a recipe for ragu or something and it was my the one that i use and i'd forgotten that quantities were were vast so you ended up with enough to uh, to feed feed the family for for a week i think didn't you <laughs> yes and they were very happy because it was absolutely delicious as well. oh good 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 <laughs> but uh yeah so so there's there's that um i go shopping but i don't go in the shops <laughs> my daughter who's uh, just finished her msc she very very kindly comes with me and goes and does the shopping with my list while i sit in the car park waiting for her. she doesn't drive so uh, so we, we we do a bit of teamwork um so oh, that, that's that, nice. that works that works virtually when i sit there looking at uh, social networks on my phone she's <laughs> and also waiting for her to say dad what does this mean and where is uh, where is the such and such did you really mean that you wanted to get 14 bags of pasta <laughs> <laughs> Those sorts of things. No, no, that was a typo. Sorry. No, that's your your, your pearl script wins. <laughs> <The bugginess. laughs> yes, yes. Those sorts of things. So uh, yeah, yes. It, so that that's actually quite fun. I'm enjoying that. Getting out and doing a doing the the shopping by proxy by remote control from the car park. It's yeah, that's good. It's, it's quite good. It's quite good. And uh, I'm not going to the gym, although the gym's open now. But uh, I've not. I'm not sure about whether the gym's a good place to to go if you if you're not 100 uh, percent fit like well, me. Well, I was I was humming and hoying about that, and I, because I, actually through the lockdown, I have kept up quite a good routine through walking a little bit of cycling. While the roads were quiet, although the roads soon became not quiet by, by about May time, I think. Um, but walking and a sort of regimen of exercises in the house. Now, I don't even have any weights, but I managed to find a pair of quite st- heavy wooden stools that are a bit light, but I managed to adapt the exercise. So I was doing, you know, I was extending my arm to its full length. So in the end, I was thinking, you know, actually, I'm probably doing more exercise now than I was when I was going to the gym. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I can, yeah, I can, that's good. Because I'm waiting for something to, like, something to compile the computer or I'm playing a, play a computer game where I'm, you know, I'm flying my spaceship through space and not much is going on. I think pick up the stools, you know, do a few press-ups, you know, actually means that I do little spots of exercise throughout the day. Um, mm. But so then I had the opportunity to go back to the gym. I thought, well, you know, I'm not getting as much cardio as I did. You know, the, I like cross trainer in particular with my favorite machine to do in the gym. So I thought, well, I'll go back and, and um, 
And I went back and it was quite quiet. And you didn't have to wear face masks. I went, oh, okay, that's fine. And it's quiet. And you know, my gym just happens to be big and open. Uh, big open area, lobby area, big open changing rooms, big open gym itself. And they don't change the tennis court into a gym. And every other machine was out of action. So I thought, this is pretty good, actually. People were noticeably, you know, wiping machines down afterwards. And I, and I felt like, you know, you know, I wasn't really coming into contact with many people. It felt to me this was negligible increase in my exposure compared mm. to my kids being mm. at school. So I thought, yep. okay, yep. I, I, I like this. And then I got a text from the gym after my first visit just telling everyone, oh, by the way, you need to wear face masks when you're not in the changing rooms and in the gym or swimming pool, basically when you're walking in the corridors between these things. went, okay, but we're not allowed to take towels or bags or anything else up to the gym with us. So what do we do with our face masks once we get to the gym? Because I don't let many people, especially women, I suppose, don't have pockets. So sure enough, I went to the gym the next time and I saw face masks hanging out with pockets and, you know, people carrying them around and, and in a few cases, hugging the end on the handle of a machine, and went, oh, this, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm not sure this makes any sense. Well, uh, that's an odd thing, actually. I was just thinking, you were saying that the gym I go to has got some pretty powerful aircon in it. In fact, um, it's uh, it's got all these ducts. It's an old supermarket, I think, that was converted, so it's got quite high ceilings, but they've got these heavy tube tubular ducts um, that go across the uh, the floor, of, uh, you know, in the ceiling across each mm-hmm. of the, the areas. And it's got down-pointing uh, louver-type things. So if you're on particular machines, you, can, you get a fair bit of air moving past you. One of the things they say is very good for... Mm-hmm avoiding the virus is to have plenty of fresh air so whether the local bus service is saying don't shut the windows the windows are open for mm. a purpose so we get plenty of air through the bus um which which makes damn good sense because this is a virus which is just floating about in the air and if it's getting blown out the windows then then so much the better you know and yeah. i'm just wondering if the, if the if the gym is a wee bit safer if it has that type of air con i imagine yours does yeah, no, it's just, I mean, you think of how often, what do you call it, the, there's a, the turnover of the air in the room, I think there's a play a better name for it, but you know, you know I mean, and and, and there's a, yeah, and if in those kind of environments, you can see big tubes, it must be quite short, um, but then I think, you know, if face masks are being hung in machines and, you know, <laughs> taken on and off constantly when people are going in and out of the gym, I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't know, can you pick it up off surfaces? You can to some yeah. extent, but although it's nowhere near as uh, as um, contagious through that route okay. as, as was originally thought, it was, okay. they, they were working on the basis of it being similar to measles because measles is one of the most contagious uh, viruses around. But um, the uh, I, I think you can if you if you touch a surface with virus on it, then you put your fingers in your mouth or up your nose or in your eyes or something, any mucous membrane, you could deliver a virus to, to, your, to your system okay, that way. But, but if yeah. you don't do that and there are hand sanitizers around and you use them after you've touched stuff, then, you know, that's uh, you're going to be pretty safe. But, yeah, um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I definitely do a lot of that. Anyway, the... But, uh, so, yeah, so the, it didn't bother me too much, but it was just one of these annoyances uh, that seemed to be a bit silly because it was 
to have face masks just to go between changing rooms and the gyms, which is a very short distance. Mm, um, mm. Didn't really see the point in that, but uh, I did it. But my third visit to the gym, I thought, hang on, this is getting ridiculous. It was absolutely packed. You know, the changing—it was hard to find a spot in the changing rooms. I mean, put every other locker out of use, but that was really—you know, there's no, there's not enough space, physical space, to mm-hmm. use all, even mm-hmm. half the lockers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and it seemed to me what was happening is usually at that time of day, people who go to the office would be in the office. Of course. Um, and yeah. now that people are working from home, they can pop up to the gym. So the uh, and combine that with the fact that gyms had only just opened like the week beforehand, I thought there's just too many people all coming to the gym. And I've heard this from other people. And I said, right, okay, I, I, I can see case, I can see cases in Glasgow going up last week. And I went, no, I don't think this is a good idea anymore. Mm-hmm. It was fine mm-hmm. the first week. I went yep. second week, yep. third visit. I thought no. Uh, and I think actually in that occasion, I didn't go up to the gym. I brought my swimming stuff, so I went to the, uh, there was an outdoor pool, which was quite quiet, and that was perfect because, yeah, all that chlorine floating about. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's going to be fine, I think. So um, I'm, I'm not going to go back until this current increase has gone back down again. Uh, yep. It seems yep. to me. I, I'm not actually that worried about me getting it, but I do feel I don't want to be part of the transmission, if you, if you understand what I mean. I don't yes. want to be. That is the, on. the factor, isn't it? That you, if you if you have it and you, it's fairly mild, you're still a bit of a time bomb for for uh, for others who who might might uh, get get it really badly nearby. So yeah, yeah this is uh, this is very wise, I think. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we seem, seem to have got back onto the virus again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like trying. It is, it's everywhere though, isn't it? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, hard to avoid. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, my gym. Um, because I got like a direct debit with them, and they suspended it during the the lockdown, and then they said, "We're starting up again. We'll be we'll be you know taking money from your bank account shortly. But um, if you want to freeze freeze the the thing for for a bit longer, we you can freeze it for six weeks or eight weeks or something." So I I opted to do that. Now I'll re rethink a bit later on. I think uh, as to whether to. Uh, to go in at that, at that stage, you know. So yeah, yeah. Well, certainly here, I've, uh, I'm not going to do it anyway. So to really change the subject away from the virus, because it seems to be that not only the, the virus might have an R number of two point five to three, but talking about the virus seems to have an R number of about hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a, the other thing I've been doing, I, I think I mentioned it to you in an email, uh, that uh, in the latter part of lockdown is I've got this old. BBC uh, Micro, which I did a, an HPR on uh, last mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. maybe the year before. Um, and no, it was, it was last year. And uh, this old BBC Micro, uh, uh, 8 bit 6502 processor for those outside the UK who might not be familiar with it, like a, like a, like a, like a Commodore 64, but with half the memory, 32K memory, but similar technology, similar era. Um, and I, decided to play an old adventure game called Twin Kingdom Valley, which I loved. It was my favourite adventure game. I also was the only one in the BBC that I know of, well, certainly the first one, that had graphics. I had a, a rather rudimentary by today's standards, but quite elegant, quite beautiful little graphics that they would display. Um, and also I contained clues as, into, as uh, to the game itself, actually. Uh, so the graphics weren't just for decoration, but they were actually an integral part of the game. Mm-hmm. And so I played it 
And I had thought I'd completed the game when I first played it in 1982 or 3. Uh, so 37, maybe, yeah, 37, 38, 37 years ago, I think. But it turns out I hadn't because I found when I got to a certain point in the game that there was something I hadn't done. So I enjoyed finishing the game. So technically, <laughs> it took me 37 years to complete my game. <laughs> That's wonderful. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So not content with completing the game, I then decided, because it's written in machine code, I thought, that's probably quite remarkable that that fits into 32k of memory. In fact, less than 32k, because I think 20k is, is taken up by the, the screen graphics. Uh, just the displaying the screen needs 20k mm-hmm, of memory. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. actual code is under 10k. I thought, actually, that's quite remarkable, because it's, it's an adventure game. It's got graphics and it's got NPCs. It's got non-player characters that that, that actually, you know, that, that they're quite. I mean, okay, they're stupid. They're robotic, but you know, for their for an eight-bit micro and so little memory, that they're actually remarkably interesting. You know, the, their behaviour is not trivial. Um, so I thought, I wonder how all this works. So I I went back and from scratch disassembled the code. And I've rewritten most of the code, not the graphics, but the actual game code itself mm-hmm. in C. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent weeks doing that. I just, I just totally, uh, totally, uh, is it geeky or is it nerdy? One of the two. Geeky, I think it's nerdy. Thing. <laughs> yes, uh, I uh, and I, it's probably both actually. Uh, but I just loved it. It was a real, it was like a real intellectual challenge to go from essentially a bunch of hex numbers, turn that into mnemonics. Um, and then use my rather rusty knowledge of six five zero two. Did you set. did you have a disassembler or something, or did you? Yes, hand... yeah. yes, I did. I there was I found one called Bebdis, uh, which was was really a six five zero two disassembler, but uh, as the name suggests, uh, with uh, particularly with the BBC in mind. But actually, it wasn't as useful as you'd think because you get screeds of code. But the way that the the, the this code is written. That, don't think it was uncommon. You'll get screeds of code, and then you'll get a little bit of code that then operates on a string of a series of bytes, which are in fact ASCII codes. Um, mm-hmm. So the disassembler doesn't know; it can't tell when um, these ASCII characters are in line with the code, as it were, because it's just a big sequence of bytes. Yeah, yeah. So it then it's produces data embedded in the code, effectively. So yeah, so it then produces this these nonsense set of instructions. And then, because of the offset of the bytes, because some instructions in Assembler are not just going to be one byte, in fact, they mostly are not, they're mostly two or three bytes, then because the offset is wrong, then everything disassembled from that point is gibberish. <laughs> yes, yes. So that was the hardest thing. Then I had to sort of write my own disassembler. It was kind of bespoke to this, the idiosyncrasies of this program. And, um, uh, and then, so I had the disassembler, and then my custom uh, disassembling code uh, on top of that, that that then after some iterative, well, just tearing my hair out, frankly, but it's very enjoyable tearing my hair out, mm-hmm. uh, I actually got the whole thing disassembled in a state where I, I I could comment it. Wow, that's that's quite an undertaking. I I, um, I did do a bit of uh, assembler level code on the, the BBC Micro. As I, I think I've said this to you before, but maybe not in not in recorded in recorded mode. Um, my friend, I, I was working with a colleague at, the, at Lancaster University, was very much into um, the BBC, and he wrote his he, he wrote an assembler for it. So uh, I used to use his assembler. The Beeb 
had a, a facility where a chunk of memory was a, um, was a could be could be a ROM. I don't remember how that worked. Now, the, the, was the ROM? Um, did you have to swap out a uh, an existing bit of code in order to, to get your own ROMs in? No, the way it worked is if you think about if it's eight bits, you can address up to sixty four k to to yeah yeah to the power uh, eight. Um, so eight bits. Uh, no, is that hang on? Uh, no, uh, sorry. The the addresses on the BBC, the address lines BBC could address up to sixteen bits. That's right, two bytes. So that takes you up to two to the sixteen, which is lets you get up to sixty four k. Um, but as I said, the original BBC only had thirty two k of RAM. So I think it what yeah what it what it does is that the upper thirty two k, which isn't RAM, that is ROM. Effectively, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So if you if you address stuff up there, that is uh, going to a ROM, and mm-hmm. that ROM mm-hmm. would be paged out, so you could then that's replace right, that that's right. there was with a, something else. There was a switch, a logical, uh, a software switch you could do. To, you could have a stack, effectively, of ROMs, and you could switch between them. I don't remember how many. There were actually add-ons that let you add more more to it, so you could you could uh, presumably it was a byte or something that addressed it or something. Anyway, there, potentially there was quite a lot of ROMs that you could have because you could buy compilers and uh, and other other systems to go into those ROM slots. And there was a on the box itself there was a panel you could remove on the on the front of the case, and underneath it was um, the the PCB had a, a slot where you could put um, a ZIF socket, you know, a zero insertion force um, mm-hmm. socket in there. And um, <clears throat> the one with a little lever that you... I'm just saying this in case any, the listeners don't know what I'm talking about. Um, you, you, you flipped a lever and it opened up the uh, the holes in it and then you dropped a, a ROM into it and then you, you flipped it shut and it, it hung on to the ROM. So that was a possibility. But there was also a thing where you had permanent ROMs on an extender card, which uh, which you could... You could, you know, you could think, they could be things you bought... Or they could be um, erasable EPROMs and stuff that uh, that you could develop software for, and uh, and and then you you just jump to that to to run your your code. I think there were even games that, that ran in ROM. I can't remember anything now, but I know I there was had one. It was you? Doctor Who, Doctor Who in the Minds of Terror. Ooh. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Well, it, the thing is. It wasn't really a very good game. It was it was a big game, you know. It was big, but it wasn't actually that much fun, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and uh, I think it's you not know, necessarily it's bit, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was yeah, and also I think it, I can't remember which company. I'm trying to remember which company actually published it, but I think it was also a financial disaster for them because mm. you know. I mean, they got around the copyright problem. It's much harder to copy a ROM than it is a disc, of course. Um, but I don't think producing ROMs was very cheap <laughs> to sell it at a retail game yeah. level. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because th- these were hard, hardwired or whatever they they were they were baked in ROMs, weren't they? We we used to at work we had a lot of um, the EE ROMs, uh, the the ones that are erasable with an ultraviolet thing, because there, mm-hmm. there was some there was some hardware development going on in the in the, the department I was in. And uh, so there was all the um, 
ultraviolet erasers and and stuff to I think you could write those ROMs on the on the Beeb, as I recall, but I can't remember the details. Oh. Well, maybe we we had an ex external ROM writer or something like that. But uh, so yeah, we we were actually playing around with developing our own ROMs at one time. Um, well, well, that's that's funny you should mention that because after I finished um, disassembling this code. I became quite familiar with the 6502 processor, you know, and I mean, you're really, when you're doing assembly, you're really down there in the guts of the machine, you know. Oh, yes. um, and uh, I found that quite interesting. And so I started going down a bit of a rabbit hole with the 6502. And to my astonishment, the 6502 is still made, it's still manufactured to this very day. Mm. Not, not the original one that mm-hmm. was in the BBC and the Commod- uh, Commodore 64, I think, had a so sixty five ten and that it was a, a, a cousin of it, um, but not those because sixty five oh two is actually I think seventy six. It's mid seventies, so it was already mm-hmm. a good f- at least five years old by the time the BBC Model B came out. Um, but so it's astonishing, really astonished me to discover that a uh, that it's that after over forty years they're still manufacturing essentially an eight bit processor. It's slightly improved. Sixty five CO two, I think it's called now is the so I think it is closer to the one that was in the BBC Master, which came after the BBC mm-hmm. Model B mm-hmm. that I had. Yeah. And uh, the reason I and I discovered this because there's a, a an excellent YouTube channel, which I highly recommend if you're into such things, by a chap called Ben Eater, which you might have heard. I have actually, yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, he's got I didn't realise that when I was watching him. But he's got like half a million subscribers who all want to watch him play on the 6502 processors. But he takes a breadboard, sticks a 6502 processor in it, connects up to LED, the address lines up to LEDs, and goes, "Oh look, they're flashing!" You know, and they're doing this, and, and then, then you know, and with, and I thought that's really remarkable. Actually, he's made, you know, whenever I saw one of these chips with, I don't know how many pins, six, 6502 has 40 pins, perhaps something like that. It just seems like that's incomprehensible. Something with forty pins. I mean, I found transistors with three legs quite difficult to comprehend. <laughs> you know, tra- <laughs> uh, resistors. I'm fine with capacitors. Yeah, transistors, three legs. Now getting ter- scary. You know, um, so forty pins. Nah, not a chance. And then he described what the forty pins did. You know, and like things like the address lines. Like each leg of the address line, the voltage is either high or low. If it's high, that's a one. If it's low, it's a zero. And there's sixteen of them, one for each bit of a 16-bit address, hence why you, know, you can have a you have a 2-byte 16-bit uh, address on the 6502 processor, because there's 16 legs that can go higher and low. You know, just that very simple thing, at least to me, uh, was quite a revelation to see all, yeah. them all connected up to LEDs. So I've actually bought a kit off Bender. Uh, I'm now going to build my own. I'm building my own 6502 computer <laughs> out of breadboards. So I... <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun. Yes, yes. The, um, <clears throat> when I worked at Lancaster University, um, I left there and moved to Edinburgh in 81. But in, in the time before, there was a group within the department. This is a service department, right, for running the main computers for the, for the university. But the, it was just the start of the time when... Um, microprocessors were, were starting to become popular and there was a small group of about three people who 
uh, was the the microprocessor unit or something like that. They all had different names in those days. And um, they did a course for us, for for the staff in the department, you know, to bring everybody up to speed with what a microprocessor was and what you could do with it and stuff. It was a really good course they did. But in order to do it, um, they we each got I think there was maybe ten of us max in the in the room. Um and we each got a six five oh two very bare machine. I can't remember what it was. I think it was the my memory says an AIM sixty no, AM thirty two was it? I don't remember. It was just a bare circuit board with a not bare circuit board, but it was it wasn't in a box, it was just um <clears throat> just sitting on a on a base. And it had 6502 on it, and it had LEDs on it, and it had uh, and it had um, a bunch of switches, so you could actually program it like the old-fashioned way of, you know, putting in a <laughs> working out what the what the, the 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 sequence was, the bit sequence was for an opcode, and uh, and and clicking it in and then pressing the button that said load this into memory and stuff, you know. So we were we were writing little teeny tiny things that ran on that that made lights flash and stuff it took ages to do but but it was really quite exciting especially since you could actually see the guts of it so a bit like what you you're describing you know if you if you're getting that close to the to the the bare metal of it you 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 get to really appreciate what uh what's what makes it tick you know <laughs> so yeah that that was that was a we never used that course. <laughs> we never used any of it. But the guys who were, who were running it were very, very good. I think they went on to, to much higher things later. But, uh, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Well, I find, I find it interesting. And like you say, probably what use is it now? Well, I don't know. But I, I'll tell you what I find more remarkable is who is using these newly manufactured 6502 processors? Is it all people like me <laughs> and Benitor yeah, and yeah. Uh, people who watch this channel? Well, it's half a million of them, so maybe that is driving it. But looking at the, the, the blurb that goes with it, it doesn't seem like that. It does seem that these processes are, are, are used for something. Um, uh, but I, hadn't, I haven't yet to discover what. Because the, the design of the 6502 is effectively a, a risk machine, wasn't it? An early not, risk. Was it not? Is it not got a reduced instruction set compared to its uh, its successors? I thought I'd heard that argument made. Um, well, you know, you're right. It is extremely small. I mean, it's only got three registers, and only one the accumulator can actually do the arithmetic. The X and Y registers can only count up and down. That's all they can do. Um, so that, as you can imagine, means that it's got a very small set of instructions. And the funny thing is that after I finished with the BBC Micro back in the 80s and early 90s, I tangled with its successor, its spiritual successor, which was called the Archimedes. And it did have an ARM chip inside it. And this is the same ARM, incidentally, This is the, that's in all our mobile phones today and tablets. Same ARM. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, it's, and, and it definitely is, uh, you know, th that deliberately was a reduced instruction set, unlike the 80. X86 uh, series in the, in the Pentium, which was still a few years ahead, uh, out at that point. But and this is the thing that's quite funny is to me, the, I, I couldn't understand why they called it RISC because there's the Acorn RISC, as it was at that time, was a bigger instruction set than the 6502, which I already knew. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. 
Yeah. The 6502 yeah. was Risk, but not intentionally so. I think it was probably done because the team that built it in the 70s were just trying to make a cheaper consumer version of um, one of the... Not, I don't think of the sixty-eight, six, uh, sixty-eight hundred, not the sixty-eight thousand. The, 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 the I think you're right. Actually, I, I don't yeah. remember much about that, but about the sixty-eight or the six-eight XX um, chips. But but yeah, I think you're you're actually right because it, it is very much pared down to the the bare bones of a of an instruction set, isn't it? Yeah, and and the other thing about risk that's famous advantage of risk and why it's ended up in our mobile devices in the form of ARM chips, is that it's low power consumption. That if it's if you reduce the complexity, you reduce the power consumption. And the interesting thing about this original 6502, like the one that's up in my UC Micro, um, I think the one that replaced it, the 65CO2, um, the one that, that I currently have got this kit for to, to build my own computer, I think the power consumption of that was incredibly low. I can't remember exactly the technical reason for this, but it was an order of magnitude lower than the original chip. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be, I think, um, that may be why that uh, that it's still in use today. It's because it's extremely low power consumption. Well, that, that's where I was going with the with the question about risk. That uh, maybe there are applications where. You, you want something that is extremely lightweight and yet, yet is effective enough with a with an eight bit uh, device or eight bit um, address uh, line or whatever. No, it's a sixteen bit, isn't it? But uh, but yeah, it's uh, that that maybe there's still an application for that type of thing. But it's it's hard to know. I don't know where where that is, given that there's all these other um, devices coming out apparently all the time. All the ESPs and and eight two six six and the ESP thirty two and stuff like that, which are, I don't I don't know anything about their instruction set because it's you you tend to program them in you know C a C variant or C plus plus variant thing. Yeah. So anyway, that's yeah, so. that's a great that's a great story. I do like the fact that you you do that. It's I used to read magazines way back in the 70s there, there were various i could not know they're practical electronics and that sort of stuff that used to say here's how you would make a, a what was it a, a um terminal i was following the i was quite keen on the idea of actually making one though i never did i probably couldn't have afforded it at that stage anyway but it was talking about how you would make a a uh a terminal in the sense of a keyboard with a with a monitor, which I think was a TV, and how you would scan the memory to um, to turn. It's a similar sort of thing to the B, where there was a sort of um, a DMA type thing where you direct memory access thing where you you plop things in the the memory, and there was a scanning process that went through it line by line effectively, and then painted it onto the, the screen. That, that type of idea. Um, the, the, it went into a lot of detail about how you would do this, what kit you would use, you know, the clocks that you would put into it to to, to get the scan, um, to build the, the scanning code, and how you would then pump that out as a, I don't know, RGB or something or whatever to the uh, to the, the monitor. I don't remember the details of it, and I just remember being amazed at what was involved in 
pressing keys on a keyboard, which made things go into memory, which then got displayed on the screen. And uh, <laughs> it seems ridiculous by today's standards, but it seemed quite exciting at the time. Yeah, that is that is something that I really appreciated, that the simple process of displaying a character or the reverse, pressing a key and telling computer that you want something to be done with the letter X, for example, involves a dish amount of electronics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, yes, yes. You know, it's not like a little, it's not, uh, um, it's not like a little, um, you know, a little electrical pulse goes along and the computer says, aha, it's an X. You know, it passes through a surprising number of chips and AND gates and inverters and mm. NANDs yeah. and NORs, you know. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's a translation stage, isn't there, where the, the actual representation of the X is is uh, has then got to be translated into how the thing would, would actually look as a bunch of pixels on a on a screen and, and that type of thing. Yeah. Just, uh, I was sorry, what, what we were talking there, I actually looked it up. The original 6502 processor uses 450 milliwatts. So it's half a watt, which is quite a lot for a little chip, actually. Mm. Uh, I what it does. It's 65CO2, which I think was in the BBC Masters that came out a few years later and and is the same as the one I have upstairs um, in my house in the kit. It only uses 20 milliwatts, so more than a factor of 20 times its power improvement. So that may well be why the 65CO2 is still in use today. Mm, mm, mm. It's quite remarkable, actually. That, you know, 20 milliwatts, considering what it can do, you know, as 20, you know, I mean, I mean how much Raspberry Pi is uh, way more than 20 milliwatts, mind you, does a lot more than the 6502 processor. But, uh, yeah, 20, 20 milliwatts is really microcontroller territory, uh, I would think. Absolutely, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, a lot, a lot, of, um, a lot of the early systems went for that, the, the 6502, but it's more about availability and cost, one would imagine, than, than anything else. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, great stuff. Yeah, so I suppose that's us been talking for over a, an hour now, I think. <laughs> so easily done, isn't it? So easy to <laughs> yes. do. Where does the time go? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I was going to, on my list of possible things to talk about, I've got... There's some company just installed uh, optical fiber in the street outside here, so I'm I'm hoping that uh, before too long I'll get a proper proper connection rather than ADSL. What's it like in Glasgow for for that? Have you got fiber? Uh, well, I've got cable, uh, which I mm. think is mm-hmm. I think it's 120 megabits down and 20 megabits up. So. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I mean, I don't think I always get those speeds, uh, to be fair. But more importantly, it's very stable. You know, I can really rely on it being up. And I know other people don't have that uh, on the same ISP. But I am very lucky because I don't mm-hmm. mind. The bandwidth is not the important thing to me. It's the reliability that's more important. Yes. Because uh, you can optimize for bandwidth, but you can, nothing you can do if your connection, like a lot of people that I talk to in uh, zoom calls and such like like dis- just disappear every so often because their router's fallen over um so no mine thing's pretty good i have to say and and the the, the fiber has appeared i saw the people installing it and tearing their hair out <laughs> mm. working through the night have you drill- yeah are you yeah because there seems to be a, a drive in scotland to get um high speed internet to everybody 
over a, over a period. And I know that Edinburgh has been one of the the cities that's, uh, that's was quite high on the priority list for getting. So they they've actually laid bundles of, of fiber through through a trench that they they dug and uh, and filled in again. So um, and they, there's a box in the ground just outside my uh, boundary of my my house. You know so and apparently there's a gigabit available if you're prepared to spend the money on it. No, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. There's a, it's it's gigabit fiber though. I have no idea whether they're going to be able to provide gigabit to an entire state of houses for a very long time yet. Because, you know, even though the fiber can handle it easily, um, have they got the infrastructure in terms of all the intermediate uh, boxes and stuff to, uh, to to do that? You know, it's, it's, not, it's a non-trivial exercise, that. But uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's my issue with what's the point of the bandwidth? Even, even 100 megabits per second. What's the point of it? Because there's no website or server out there that I ever use that, that can op- <laughs> that can serve up data. Because the only advantage I can see is for the speed of a large download. If I'm downloading many gigabytes and some bits of software, I mean, a, a Linux distro can be several gigabytes easily. A Windows update could be that big. Um, a game could be tens, maybe even over 100 gigabytes these days, and um, movies and so forth. But no servers will serve up that fast to you, <laughs> you know, no, you know, no, to, no. to use up my 100, mega, uh, 100 megabits, even if the kids did stop streaming everything they're doing uh, and everything, all their movies into the house. Um, and I had that full bandwidth. There's no server out there that could serve it up that fast. So I don't really see what the advantage of 100 megabits per second is, let alone a gigabit. <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's. Uh, I wonder if... if because I think the sort of thing that's coming is a gigabit in both directions. Um, though I think you would, that's really good business and stuff. And the expectation is you spend a lot of money on it. But, uh, you know, you could actually run your own servers in your house if you, if you wanted to, if you wanted to do that. You know, I don't know how desirable that is, but, but, uh, it's always seemed to me to be a, be something that would be quite nice to have your own VPN or something in your yeah, house. Uh, yeah, I think rather, I mean, what I would like to see done is more about reliability of internet connections and latency. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't see, I don't see, it seems to be that people are a bit fixated with bandwidth. I mean, I've seen a couple of cases in software that I support. Um, the, the software which needs to contact a SQL server over a network connection, the only network connection I've, I've ever seen that's reliable enough is an old-fashioned Ethernet cable. Five, you know, it doesn't even need to be Cat five E or six. You know, it could be. You know, it doesn't even need that. It just needs to be a cable connection, Wi-Fi, and anything that goes through the wider internet is generally not reliable enough. It's not mm-hmm. useful enough because of latency issues. I mean, da- the data that this is for a software application, but it needs to send the data from database and back. You know, as fast as the user can click around and type stuff in you know uh-huh. now whether <laughs> you could argue that maybe the software could be designed better but i'm kind of stuck with the software that i'm supporting i can't control that so i, I keep saying to customers yes yeah, yes you've got 100 megabits or 10 megabits or whatever it is yeah that's that's oodles that's plenty the problem is that your latency is all over the place it's anywhere from you know it's anywhere from like a few hundred milliseconds which is probably okay for most purposes to some cases several seconds <laughs> occasionally yeah. You know, yeah. presumably because the, the packets are getting corrupted and sent multiple times or something, I don't know. 
But whatever it is, it means then that you, you know, a secretary is typing furiously away into the computer, presses a button, then has to wait three seconds for something to update, you know, or maybe an error message gets generated because it timed out. That actually, for the, the, the speed of the way people work with this software in the office, is, is actually very inconvenient for them. Um, you know, when you, you click a button, you want to see it depress and undepress straight away. You don't want yeah. to hang around and yeah. wait for a few seconds. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, oh. I know, I know. It's um, it yes, I think there is a there is a tendency to uh, to get very very excited about the incredible bandwidth, without necessarily thinking about why. <laughs> My car will go very very fast. Yeah, but find a road that you can drive it on. There. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly the kind of thing. Or if it crashes. <laughs> like, yes, yes. You know, like, I mean, we've all had a, maybe a, someone we know or maybe a friend who said, "I've just bought a Porsche." And then you're thinking, hmm, yeah, you're not a good driver, are you? First wait <laughs> day, smash. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. All that acceleration and on a, on a slippery road. No, no, no. Uh, anyway, well, I guess uh, having just uh, hijacked the, the wind-up that we should have done 15 minutes ago, <laughs> maybe we should do it now. But, no, uh, no, that's, that's absolutely fine, Dave. Yeah. Uh, no, it's good. It's, we... Um, when we when we get together in in normal times, we, we tend to rabbit on about all sorts of things, which is which is great and fascinating. So just sharing our chit chat with the with the world, which is great stuff. Indeed, so, indeed. Yes. And how, just out of interest, how is HPR doing for shows at the moment? I know the queue got a bit dry over the summer, but is it looking more healthy again? Not too bad, I think. Moving away, not sure whether I've lost mumble as a consequence. Uh, we've got enough. We've got next week stuff. So we've got all of this week. We've got stuff the following week. We've got we've got gaps the week after that. I think so. We're 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 okay. We're okay. But uh, you know, it's 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 always the case that you see a gaping void, and then oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then people come in and fill the fill the gaps, and then you think, oh, that's fine then, because. That same problem is going to occur again in a in a matter of days, whether it be a week or two weeks or three weeks. It's gonna it's gonna happen again, you know, because it's not a steady flow that that comes in. Though that well, being well, said, my little traffic light system just went red to say somebody just sent in a show, so uh, you know, can't I can't really complain. <clears throat> oh right, okay. So you, yeah, so your traffic light system goes to red when you have to get moving. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yes, yes. The logic of that. No, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> it's to, calling it a traffic light system is wrong because it isn't that. It's, a, it's just a, a bunch of lights, that, and the red one is urgent. And the, the green oh, one is. I just got an email from my daughter or something, and uh, so I better do something about that. So uh, yeah, so yes. it's not so much. It's more like a H, you know, like like DEFCON. It's like HBRCON, but alert <laughs> level. That's right. That's right. Yes, we're on alert, alert level pink or something. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, yes. So I suppose the message there is more shows, please. Uh, and yes. I, we're, we're doing this one, and I probably have at least two shows. One about <laughs> more about 6502 disassembly, and I've got probably another show once I've built this uh, 6502 computer. So it'll be a bit of a theme to my shows if I yeah, watch yeah. them when I get around to them. Uh, but yeah, I should I'll do that one in disassembly. That. Yeah, it'll be cool. I, uh, I went on training courses on. Um, assembly language i am not that keen on it um these days i got lazy i think but uh, but those courses were pretty good i went on an ico 
uh, cores for their for their mainframes, right assembler for their mainframes and stuff. Um, and uh, those are those are quite quite interesting, but you know, it's not a thing I'd want to do now. Um, but Boy. it's uh, I should you know I think you you might change my mind a bit. <laughs> no, I mean, is it? I don't know what it is that attracts me about it. I like simplicity. Uh, all the computer languages that I'm drawn to in assemblers, the most extreme form, 6502 more so, are compact. So my favorite language, I mean, I've programmed in Java for years, but I really want I really want to go back to programming in C because there's just so little to know. You know, I mean, look at Kernan and Ritchie book. The first, it's a very slender book. And then you consider that the first half of it is telling you how to use it. And the second half is the reference for the language itself. And then you go around and look at other languages like Java, at the huge, big, fat, thick volumes that people write on it, you know. But C can really be condensed into something as slender as Kernahan and Ritchie. <laughs> no, that's very true. It's very true. I was quite attracted to uh, fourth. I had a fourth ROM on my bead, and uh, it's a it's a very, very, very strange language, but it's a uh, it's it's incredibly compact. That and oh. have you ever looked at PostScript? PostScript is another. Postscript as a language is is very very um, as in Postscript files, yeah, yes files, yeah, yeah. It's oh, a, I never thought a, of it as a language. It's a programming I it was more language. Like a... Yeah, no, it's it's. Oh. A, I've, I've often wondered if I should do an HBR show on Postscript, but uh, yeah, because I always, I always assumed it was a more like a markup language. I never thought of it as a programmatical language. No, it's a it's an RPN stack based language. Um, so you know you put. Uh, Three, seven plus to, to add three and seven and all that sort of stuff, and, and it's all stack oriented and uh, as is fourth. So uh, yeah, oh, it's quite... I, I, I don't I know nothing about fourth. That is, it's funny you should mention that. I mean, I've been I've dabbled with just about every language, especially the unusual ones like Prolog and Erlang, and you know, you know, fun, you know I've gone, um, you know, I've da- I, I just go in and have a little play with them every time I see. I think oh, I've got to find out why this language is different. I, you know, I've never, I've never done fourth. It's no. it, well, there was a time when it was really popular in the astronomy world, wasn't it? Because it's quite a number of telescopes that were driven by by fourth programs. I, oh, I, I never, I quick. never got, I never tangled directly with telescopes, just analysing data mm-hmm. from them mm-hmm. in my professional career. So, so I think, a, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But I just, <laughs> but no, I, I never, my, I was never required to do that. No, no, no. I just imagine everybody'd be learning fourth and. Writing things in fourth—that <laughs> was just just the weird weird idea. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Oh well, there's another. Yeah, definitely an HBR show I'd listen to in fourth then. And yeah. After I ought to write that wrong. After I've listened to, if you do one, I'll listen to it and then go away and have a go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's 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 in my list, but my list is very very long, and I'm and I, I don't know whether I'll ever get to some of them. Postscript <laughs> is fun. I uh, we we had laser printers at work. When we got our Vax cluster, um, part of the bundle was two two laser printers, just just sort of desktop things. But they were really really popular because all of a sudden students could make you know reports very quickly and easily. Um, whereas previously they had to send stuff to a daisy wheel printer or get somebody to type it or something. And uh, but we didn't have a means of of um, billing, so I got given the task of trying to write something which would detect how many pages of a postscript thing wrote because it was a postscript they were postscript printers but that's all they talked so 
I ended up having to write things that got loaded into the printer before and after each each job, each print job that was sent to it, which which counted. If you looked at the the inbuilt counters beforehand and after to say, you know, this job produced so many pages, and then it would write a log that we could uh, we could then build people with because it, it the world became far more sophisticated and lots of people did this sort of thing and they were commercially available etc etc but i did end up doing that for, <laughs> for oh. a while in postscript it's, it's a weird yeah. wonderful thing oh yes i never i just never appreciated postscript could do that so uh, yeah yeah so let's uh let's call it an end it's been really good thanks very much andrew it's, it's been really fun to to have a chat and uh I could go on for ages, and I'm sure you could too. Yeah, <laughs> but we yeah, better stop. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, yeah. We've got, to, got, got to keep HPR episodes to a finite length. I think that's. <laughs> yes. I don't think it, I don't think that's actually written down anywhere. But I, <laughs> I think implicitly, uh, given the constraints uh, <laughs> and the laws of physics, they have to be of a finite length. <laughs> so let's uh, let's say our goodbyes then. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening and record a show. And please let me know if you uh, please le- uh, do a show. 6502, or leave a note in the comments if you know why the 65CO2 is still in production to this day. Yeah, good question, actually. Yeah, yeah, I bet there are some people out there who do know a lot about this sort of stuff. Okay, bye bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.